You are entering the Freedom Hut. Today we're going to talk about a massive race issue with Starbucks. They are now doing training uh, for 175,000 employees. Why is this all happening? Plus, we'll get into all of the latest on the Gorsuch ruling or Gorsuch siding with uh, what seems to be the liberal side of the court on immigration. Talk about how that affects the Trump administration. Plus, Stormy Daniels has a sketch release of the person she says threatened her. We'll talk about the latest Antifa effort to intimidate conservatives and how do government employees bankrupt state budgets. All that and more coming up. This This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make Make no mistake. America, you're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Left Coast Edition. I'm out here live in uh, Los Angeles. Sunny but somewhat windy Los Angeles today. Uh, enjoying my time out here very much, and nice to be close to some of my West Coast team, Buck, for a change, uh, at least close in proximity. We are always close in terms of uh, the fight for liberty and justice, my friends. Uh, but I, I gave you a sense just there of what we're going to talk about today on the show. I, I was thinking we should lead off, and instead of just doing what everyone else is focusing on with the, the latest in the battles over Trump in court and the way that the media is fighting that out. Um, I wanted to focus on something else, uh, which is this uh, big story with Starbucks that has affected, that's going to affect 8,000 stores. Starbucks is one of the most valuable uh, brands in the country. And it has, uh, I think the second most, I think it's considered the second most valuable food brand after McDonald's now. It has 8,000 stores, 175,000 employees. It's a big company, right? And I, I, Starbucks is ubiquitous, as you know. In fact, I always remember years ago, uh, the comedian Louis Black, whether you, whether you like him or not, there was a funny bit he did on how he knew that the end of the world was coming because he walked out of a Starbucks and across the street, there was a Starbucks. And, those, and you remember that it had become... So commonplace, and there were so many of these stores that that felt like it was, in fact, it was probably a true story. Not only did it feel like a real story, but it's it's a very large brand. As you know, it skews ideologically uh, to the left, right? It's leadership, it's CEOs, um, it's even, from what I've seen, it's music offerings at the uh, checkout counter. You know, you got a lot of, uh, a lot of emo, a lot of Nora Jones back in the day, that kind of stuff. And... It's now in the crosshairs of the uh, social justice movement in this country and the left. They are very upset, and Starbucks is taking some lumps over this one. They're going to be having a national uh, shutdown or a shutdown of stores for a retraining day. I don't even I can't even imagine what this costs, but I, I want to walk you through what's going on, uh, because here we're seeing usually you got these. Uh, movements of uh, protest that tend to target companies on that are, if not on the right, that are at least kind of apolitical. Starbucks, you've got something along the lines of friendly fire here for the social justice wars. It's considered a more uh, left-wing, left-leaning company. It's policies, for example. I mean, if you're wondering, how can you say that? Are you really basing on the fact that they 
have uh, bargain bin Nora Jones CDs at the checkout counter? I mean, the answer to that is kind of. But Starbucks also was was the company that uh, said that they were going to hire thousands of refugees. If you remember, if memory serves, that was a Starbucks initiative. I don't even know how far they got with that. But that was at a time when there was a lot of contention with the Trump administration and with whether or not they should be bringing people into the country without proper vetting. Starbucks weighed right into the middle of that topic and was, you know, we are all about bringing in refugees and training them and giving them jobs. To Americans and to the uh, forgotten folks of much of the country between the coasts uh, who feel like they are left out of the national political discussion, they're left out, uh, they're, they're out of sight, out of mind for the political class, that didn't really send quite the uh, the right message, I think. And uh, there was a there was a backlash to this. But why is Starbucks in trouble now? Well, over issues of race. And this is a story that brings together a few different pieces and a few different components of uh, or different components of stories that has now led to, as I said, a shutdown of uh, 8000 stores, 175000 employees are going to have to be trained in racial uh, sensitivity, anti-racism training is what they are calling it. Now, there's two incidents that led to this and uh, to really understand this, because the knee jerk right now, the knee jerk reaction you get is that you're going to you don't want to deal with it. Right. You and I mean, from the company's perspective, you just you want the problem to go away. And that means now paying some kind of public penance. That means bending the knee and saying, oh, you know, we're right. You're right. We have to do something here to show that we take this issue very, very seriously. And, and I want to discuss how that manifests itself in corporate culture across America. Now, wherever you work or wherever your family member, uh, family members work, they are being affected, too, by this culture of uh, uh, appeasing whatever the social justice mob demands at any point in time, because it's easier. Because you don't want to boycott. You don't want people picketing your stores. You don't want people, as has happened here, and many of you may have seen, there's one image in particular of, a, of an activist, which is sometimes a polite way of saying people that are being uh, very aggressive protesters, of an activist going into a Starbucks location with a bullhorn shouting in an employee's face. Mind you, an employee who has nothing to do with the incidents that I'm about to describe to you. Now Starbucks has become a target, and uh, there's a lot of different things that are going on with that. But just uh, don't let this turn into it, you know, as I'm discussing this, and I'm trying to bring in a lot of different threads and pieces. This isn't about one company. This is about corporate culture in America. It's about the national discussion around race and racism and how those dynamics play out right now. So whether you are listening to this show uh 10 minutes away on the 101 here in Los Angeles, or you, I think that's the highway that's near me. I have no idea. Uh, and <laughs> I Uber here. I don't know where I am. I, I could be, I could probably be in, you know, uh, San Francisco for all I know. But, or if you're listening in, uh, in one of our Midwest states, one of our Southern affiliates, you know, this affects you. The way that the discussion around race drives corporate policy is, we. this is now, Everywhere, and it, we all have to deal with it. Okay. So here are the incidents at hand that I want to walk you through. One of them uh, was back in January, and it was in 
Los Angeles. Now, let me set this up for you a little bit. So there was this video taken, and it purports to show, and I'm going to use words like purports or alleges because one of my main points I want to make here is that there's not really much in the way of fact-checking or getting both sides of the story. Journalists, when they see a story about racism, they run with the, oh, my gosh, that is so racist narrative. They, they go right to that. They don't waste the time on, is there another side? Is there a greater context? Are there other things happening here? No, no, no. Let's just run with the, this is racist story. And if we have to go back and add that, you know, maybe there was something else going on here, we'll do that. But we'll have already gotten all the clicks, all the likes, and even more importantly to the journalist class and the media, the mainstream media, uh, they'll have gotten the credibility of giving attention, raising awareness, to borrow from the term preferred by the left. They will have raised awareness about racism in America. And those of us who stand around and say, hold on, can we ask some questions? They say, I'm sorry, are you saying racism isn't real? You'll notice that has become the the question that is used to bully people into silence the same way that the moment you start to talk about, let's say, terrorism, people will say you're are you being Islamophobic? Or they'll talk about immigration, you're being xenophobic or, or racist, right? You, they, they want to shut down the discussion unless it fits immediately in with the narrative. So out in Los Angeles, purportedly, uh, allegedly, what happened is that a, uh, an African-American asked to use, and I mean, I would really bet every single person listening to this show right now across the country and in all 50 states, um, has one been to a Starbucks probably many times, and you know how this goes, right? Uh, a lot of them require you to buy something. It's a customer bathrooms are for customers only, especially in more crowded urban areas, uh, because they don't want to just be the bathroom for anybody walking by on the street for very obvious reasons that I don't need to tell any of you, right? It's it becomes a, a labor issue. Um, you know, you don't want to be the bad. You don't want to be the, the store that's within walking distance of Times Square that everyone is just saying, oh, I'm just going to go use that bathroom. Right. Um, and the story here is that an African-American man uh, went to use the bathroom. At, and this was back in January, which I'm telling you about that one because that's been tied in to another incident from just the past week. So I'm not bringing in some old story for no reason. These are the two data points we have to work with about why Starbucks, one of the biggest franchises in the country, has to shut down all of its stores and give what I'm sure will be completely uh, unhelpful and who cares training to 175,000 people based on these two events. So this African-American gentleman back in January out in Los Angeles, where I am right now, right? So I'm uh, not reporting you know, from the scene of the incident, but close by. And he asked for the code to use the bathroom. They, uh, the store manager, um, refused to give the code because he had not purchased anything. And then the African-American gentleman approached a, uh, I I think the guy's white, um, but a a, a guy, a non-minority guy uh, who had just left the bathroom and said, did they give you the code? Anyway, this is how that exchange went. Play clip 21, please. Before you made a purchase, they let you use the restroom, right? Uh, I just typed in, I asked for the code. You asked for the code, and they just gave it to yeah. you, right? Before you made a purchase. Yeah. Okay. All right. Come on, let's go. 
Are you done? Are you about to get something? So this is Weston. And Weston hadn't made a purchase yet, you guys. He's in line to make a purchase. And you guys haven't get, you guys, you got. I feel it may be my skin color. Hey, but this is, this is about to be on social media. So that gentleman that you heard there speaking, uh, the African-American gentleman who feels he was denied uh, access to the restroom because of his race, is saying that Weston, based on the name he used there, Weston, the other guy, uh, was just given the code. Now, we are told that this is evidence, uh, this is de facto evidence of racism. Now, the fact that the... Uh, from what I understand, the the uh, woman running the store, the store manager at the time. Oh wait, no. See, this is I'm I'm trying to make sure I don't get my my stories mixed up here. So hold that for a second. What we don't know is did Weston in did it seem like he was going to purchase something? See, these are the questions the media won't ask because they don't want to because it's a great story. Racism, it, racism for most of the media equals meaning covering racism uh, equals ratings. And they don't want to mess with that, whether we're talking about CNN, a lot of local news, wherever it is. Stories of racism get eyeballs, which in a way is, is a good thing because it just goes to show you that people have a real revulsion. I mean, the overwhelming, not just majority, but you know, uh, uh, almost all Americans, when they hear a story about racism, if they think it's a real story of racism, they're like, oh, whoa, that's not who we are. That's not how we do things here. That's not okay. Uh, people of all backgrounds, creeds, ethnicities, colors, they hear a story they think is actually racist and they want redress. And it's not okay. So you will get a lot of media attention for something right away. But there are also stories, as we know, where the notion that it's racial animus that's pushing the incident or racial animus behind it, right? Racism behind the incident uh, can be, it can be a little bit more of a gray area it can be murkier is this is it really racism is this uh, are we making assumptions here is it about are we saying that this is based on implicit bias there's all these different components that, that come into play so let me say this and, and then i have to walk through the other case and then i've got a whole direction i want to take this because this is being used now it's a major news story uh you know that, that starbucks is having to bend the knee and apologize and say we're you know we need to do retraining here sensitivity training starbucks very diverse workforce, by the way, uh, and, and a left-wing employer, right? A left-wing from the top down. The C-suite of Starbucks, the corporate exec types running Starbucks, are, are these are Democrats, folks. So there's, there's a lot of those dyna- there are a lot of dynamics at play. But did anyone stop to ask the question, did the guy in Los Angeles in January who was allowed to use the – did it seem like he was about to buy something? Was he standing in line and then walked up to the store manager and said, hey, could I just have – you know, essentially, could I use the bathroom before I purchase something? Whereas did the African-American man who came in seem like he's just, hey, can I use your bathroom? Something as simple as that could be an explanation as to why you have different outcomes and how the store manager reacted because the store manager is running a business and does not want to offend someone who's about to buy something. That said, I would want to know what the response was uh, from the store manager to the gentleman who asked for the code to the bathroom initially, uh, was it, hey, can you buy something? If the first response was, can you buy something, and the answer from the guy was no, well, why is why are we supposed to accept that that's the case? By the way, we have the other story in Philadelphia of uh, two gentlemen, both African-American, who were arrested in a Starbucks. And so these this is where this comes together, and oh my gosh, this becomes a big story. We will get into that 
and uh, and more here coming up, team. So so stay with me. The big Starbucks incidents. We got that and more coming up. Welcome back, team. Uh, I, I wanted to put it out there that if you wanted to call in, if you got some thoughts on this whole Starbucks situation, please do uh, give me a call. And by the way, if we have any Starbucks baristas out there, that'd just be kind of a nice perspective to get. Uh, I'm sure we have a lot of Starbucks drinkers, although they should become Black Rifle coffee drinkers. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, if you got a barista out there or anyone who's ever had to deal with this in a store where someone's asked for the code for the bathroom and what that can be like, because I know people get very hostile, very hostile when you tell them they got to purchase something before they use the bathroom. I have been told in the past, you know, I've said, you know, may I, if they don't have a sign up, right, I don't push my luck, but if I just walk into a place, hey, can I use your bathroom? And they say, customers only, you know what I do then? I buy something. It's not that hard. If I really need to use the bathroom, I can spend, you know, two bucks on a, on a Diet Coke, which I would, I would not drink, but nonetheless. It's something that I can do. I want to know what your thoughts are on this. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Because uh, trust me, you're going to see this story is going to this is going to keep going for a while. Because on May, May 29th, it's a month away, is when you're going to have this big day of training for the 175,000 Starbucks employees. It was like an army of Starbucks employees. You know, this is, this is a full-scale field army. This is many divisions of Starbucks barista getting together to make the most frothy la- uh, frothy lattes possible. I found out recently how many calories are in a latte. It made me a little sad because I like whole milk. Because soy milk is not milk, as we know. Soy milk is a poor imitation of a uh, watery soy beverage. I don't know. It's not not milk. Um, so the, uh, the case that I was mentioning to you from January, why did that come out? Well, Brandon, um, wait, is, am I getting the gentleman's name right? Mr. Ward, I think his first name is Brandon was the one who posted on social media about the incident uh, in question here. Uh, he And he posted, yeah, Brandon Ward. I got the name right. So he's the African-American uh, gentleman who posted about the incident, and he did it because he said what happened this past weekend, the newest case, that's what's gotten everyone really fired up, um, that it was, uh, it reminded him of it, uh, what happened in Philadelphia. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Should Starbucks give a couple hundred thousand employees racial sensitivity training because of two now widely reported incidents at two of the 8,000 Starbucks franchises across the country? Is that a reasonable response? Is it the right response? And what do you think, by the way? 844-900-2825. We've got some calls coming in. We'd love to hear from you on this. Uh, so I, I, I talked to you about the January incident, which was reported on after the Philly, uh, the January L.A. incident, because the Philly incident just happened this past weekend, which I'm about to give you the details of. Remember, the, the devil is in the details here. Was this an incident of racial bias? You've got to know what you got to know really what happened, not just what one person says happened. You have to look at the full context. And I was going to note before, from what I can tell, and I'm just operating on the video we saw, 
the, the woman in question, and I know social justice warriors would tell me it doesn't matter, but the woman in question is not white in the, the store manager in question in California. I, uh, I, I believe she's Hispanic, but I, I'm, you know, I don't, it doesn't say her name. Um, she said that the guy couldn't have, that uh, Brandon Ward couldn't have the code to the bathroom in L.A. He posted that video that he took after uh, the Philly incident came to light from this past weekend. So the Philly incident is, is as follows. You had a, a couple of uh, uh, two black men who were in a Philadelphia, who were in Philadelphia Starbucks, Philadelphia Starbucks location. Um, they refused to leave uh, because at first they were, they were trying to use the restroom without making a purchase. And then it was clear they were to the store manager. This is what the store manager claimed uh, said that, they when it when they asked to use the bathroom and they couldn't and then they stayed in the store and sat at a you know at a counter or a table whatever it was and then they were asked to leave uh they refused to leave and this is some of the uh, video of the incident play clip 22 Okay, so so what's happening there is the police, the police were called. Um, we can cut the audio. The police were called, and that's because these two men refused to leave when they were asked to leave by the store manager, and the police showed up. Now, this is where I got to tell you, I, I don't know why, you know, this doesn't seem like a comp, this is not a complicated part of it. When you're in private property and the cops show up and they say you're no longer welcome here, your response is, Thank you, officer. Uh, we'll be leaving the premises. Your response is not, I'm not listening to you, cop. That's just not, that's not going to fly. That doesn't work. You're on private property. If you have been uh, the subject of or the victim of discrimination, by all means, tell, bring the officer outside with you. Um, uh, lodge that complaint. Get it on record. You bring legal recourse. But you don't tell the officers. And this is where, you know, the, the media hasn't really, big surprise, hasn't really focused in on this part of it. The cops who are arriving have been told by the, uh, the manager, so effectively the owner for all, intensive, uh, all intents and purposes. I almost did the intensive purposes thing. See, i got to catch myself. It's almost like saying besides the point, intensive purposes. These are things that it just, I should, I should slap myself. Anyway, uh, once... The police have been called, though, by the person in charge of this this private business and has said that people need to leave. They won't leave. They're not paying customers. They weren't paying customers. And then they get into a an exchange with the cops. Where the cops say, you can either leave or you're getting arrested. And they choose to get arrested. That's on them. The cops didn't come in there rolling a flashbang grenade, say everyone on the ground and start throwing flex cuffs on people. OK, the cops came in calmly by all accounts and said, excuse me, gentlemen, you need to, you know, you need to leave this location. You need to leave this uh, Starbucks, and they wouldn't do it. So now we get into the, and I know it's taken some time to get here, but it, it's important because all you're going to read in the headlines is uh, a black man in L.A. was denied use of the bathroom when a white person wasn't, and two black guys were arrested in a Starbucks for trying to use the bathroom, and there were lots of white patrons there. They weren't asked to leave. That's the only story the media wants to tell. 
Now, can I tell you that that's, that any of that is not true or that there's a lot more to it than that? Not definitively, but I certainly have some questions. Um, and before this becomes a national news story as it has now, and trust me, now you're gonna, there's going to be more uh, efforts to find unconscious bias, implicit bias. There, there's going to be more stories like this because there's going to be a, a pile-on effect of, see, uh, and even if it's not true, even if someone's being hypersensitive, the way social justice, the social justice left approaches any of these issues of race, even when it's even when the facts that come out initially are wrong or even when the issue is raised in a way that it is not a, a faithful telling of the story. It doesn't matter as long as it's, quote, raising awareness, which means Making everyone talk about racism, even if there was no racism, it's worthwhile, it's good. That is the that is the mantra of the left on all of these issues. There doesn't have to be racism for it to be good that we're talking about the racism that was said to be there but wasn't. And I know that's very uh, circuitous, uh, but you get the idea, right? That's kind of running around itself, but that's the way they approach it. So the questions that I would have or what I would want to know is, Okay, let's go to the Philadelphia incident for a second. Um, were the two men in question here, uh, were they being, the uh, two black men who ended up being arrested at the Starbucks location, were they uh, being hostile? Uh, were they, because remember, what I, what I played the audio of is when the cops arrived. And at that point, clearly there was already, there was already uh, some, some Ill, Ill feelings being expressed about what was going on. Were they being nasty to the store owner? Uh, did he or she in any way feel like they were being threatening? Uh, not having to do with their race, but having to do with the tone they were using, the word, you know, what did they say? Is there, another, is there another side to the story? Uh, in one of the incidents, I know that the employee has uh, separated from Starbucks. They didn't say fired, reassigned, or resigned. Um, but you've had both the managers, uh, certainly the one from the L.A. location, have come under all kinds of scrutiny and, and have now been plastered across the Internet as racist, which is really damaging. It makes it not not only do you have the I'm willing to guess, you know, the threats that they've received now. People are it's so easy to track people down in this day and age of, of social media. You know, are, are their families being threatened? Are they are they really scared because of what happened? And we don't even know the full extent of what was said and done and what the truth of these situations is. Well, you'll notice that with Starbucks, they don't even stop and say, hold on a second. Maybe, maybe we should get the full facts of the situation before we jump to we need to do a massive retraining for 175,000 people, as I said, coming up in about a month. Shut down all these stores. And the CEO has already publicly apologized. Uh, The CEO who uh, used to be Schultz. Now it's Kevin Johnson. Um, he has called these he called the arrests reprehensible and said, quote, our store manager never intended for these men to be arrested. And this should never have escalated as it did. But, you know, if the Philadelphia police commissioner, Richard Ross, defended the officers, thankfully, here and said, look, these they quote, these officers did absolutely nothing wrong. It is important to emphasize and underscore that these officers had legal standing to make this arrest. Yeah. Cops show up and say, can you please leave? The answer is, you know, unless it's your house and there's some mistake about that. The answer is yes. You leave. You don't say, no, I, you know, I don't want I I don't think I'm going to let you arrest me today. 
sort of like Sheriff Behan for Tombstone fans. Behan, I don't think we'll be letting you arrest us today, right? That's Tombstone, the movie, Tombstone reference. Anyway, um, but that's not how it goes. You, you don't get to tell the cops, sorry, not today. Uh, I'm not in the mood. You got to leave. So the arrest component of this shouldn't be getting the attention that it is. And that a, a manager at a Starbucks felt the need to call the police to get two people who were loitering, which is they, they do have a policy about loitering. And it is actually also against the law in Philadelphia. There's an ordinance against it. Uh, you know, there are rules, there are laws, and these will be enforced by uh, private businesses that are trying to act in their interest to keep the flow of customers coming in, to keep the bathroom usage limited to folks who are paying customers. But I, I want to know other things, too, like did the, you know, did, did the customer that, uh, for example, use the bathroom in Los Angeles, was he somebody that was in there every day? I mean, I can tell you that at, at different times in my life when I lived in New York and, and was going to hipster coffee shops uh, instead of making my black rifle at home, they knew me. They knew that I, I'd come in there and I was going to get coffee. And if I had said, hey, you know, Bob, could I go grab a, could I go, you know, hit the bathroom real quick, even if they had a code, they'd give it to me because they knew that I was about to buy coffee. Did anyone ask that question about the L.A. incident? No, of course not. Did we get anyone, any reporters, any of these intrepid journalists that are covering this terrible incident of racial bias in Philadelphia? Anyone ask any of the other customers there, hey, what were these guys like, these two guys who were arrested? They clearly were belligerent with the police. Bad idea. Can't have that. Right? You know, law enforcement showing up. They're doing a job. They have a right to be respected when they have a request for you to leave private property without making a big deal of it. And if you won't leave, they can arrest you, right? There are rules. They're enforcing them. Uh, but, uh, you know, what, what, was the, what was the tone? What was the approach of the men who wanted to stay behind in the Starbucks? Were they being disruptive? Did they say anything uh, offensive or aggressive toward this store manager? The, these are all things that I would want to know. And, and then there's even a whole other level of this. And this is where you get to the structural, really, Starbucks? That, that this is where we're supposed to think there's a, there's there's you know, structural racism or they need to address this with the whole workforce. Do I think it's possible? Do I think it's even likely there are some people at Starbucks who have bad attitudes about race? Of course. Right? I'm not going to get caught in the book. Do you think racism is not real? Of course, racism is real. Do we think racism is a is a widespread and, and serious problem at Starbucks? Starbucks is a very diverse workforce. Um, uh, a lot of African-Americans on the payroll working hard for that company a lot of uh latinos in the payroll a lot of people from all over right I and mean, it's just a, it's a very diverse 175 thousand people do we think that it's a company that in any way is uh insensitive to it no it's a company that's bending over backwards in fact to be inclusive and to be diverse and and so what do we think really happened here do we think that starbucks these are incidents because the way it's portrayed by the media is that these are just the ones we caught these are just ones we know about now because of the raising awareness is it more likely maybe that there's just being a greater there's a greater sensitivity to these problems because of the way the media is covering them right now? Is it more likely that maybe these problems in these two incidents were being exaggerated based on the circumstances because it serves a media narrative? These are the things that I look at. That's what I want to know. And trust me, if they if this can be a problem for Starbucks, if this this you are just one angry customer away from any business that you run or any company that you work for. You are one angry employee or business away uh, or, or customer away from a really bad news cycle. They'll do a lot of damage to you and no one's going to stop and ask any questions. They're going to want immediately uh, for people to be begging for forgiveness, you know, and, and turning themselves over to the 
the tender mercy of the uh, social justice left. Very troubling. Uh, we'll take some of your calls after the breaks. we got lines lit up all over, as I thought we would. And uh, then the next hour, we have a lot more coming your way. How do uh, states get bankrupted by pensions? Given that it's tax day and you, the taxpayer, are getting real rough stuff on this one, I think that'll be a worthwhile conversation for us. And that's coming up, too. Stay with me. All right, we've got some lines lit. Let's take some calls from our friends here who can uh, join us via phone. Uh, 844-900-2825. If you also want to get in on the action, James in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, James. How you doing? I'm all right. Thank you for your call. Uh, well, you kind of stole my thunder on the question I wanted to ask, and I didn't tell your screener, but the one that really got my attention was, is this uh, Winston guy a regular? Oh, well, yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a very that, important question. You know, now, I've been, the, I've been working for the public my whole freaking life. Uh, 43 and a half years, I just retired from a job in the retail grocery business. And we know people, you know, if you see somebody every other day, you basically build up relationships with them. So if the guy's in there every day and he has to use the John, and you know he's a regular customer, you're going to let him have the code. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you don't, you may generate a complaint. And, and you know, there's other, yeah, and people, look, the, the other part of this, too, that, that I find really troubling is there's there's some bullying that goes on here of employees, by the way, including employees that weren't even in these locations. You know, now you've just got protesters walking in, yelling at people that work in Starbucks who are just trying to make a living and feed their families and themselves, too, right? I mean, they're, they're not bad guys or gals. They're just trying to do a job, and you know, a very... Uh, you know, uh, uh, they're trying to provide a service that people want and make an honorable living. And to have people yelling in their faces about how Starbucks is racist, I think it's just completely unfair. Uh, but, you know, to your point about being being a regular, you know, there are other ways, too. I would want to know, for example, did the guy who, you know, who got the code in Los Angeles, did he kind of ask, like, kind of on the slide a little bit to the side? Whereas did the other guy come in and kind of say it in a way that everyone around him could hear? You know, there, there's, there are things that can factor into an incident like this that have nothing to do with race. And I just feel like we've gotten a very simplified narrative of two events that seem to me like they deserve a little more scrutiny before you have the massive backlash against this company that it's had. Not that I'm some big fan of Starbucks, by the way. I'm not. Well, I'm very seldom with Starbucks. But uh, being, like I said, being in the grocery business, being in the retail business, that. They would they would possibly uh, decide a, a strategy to come into the store and uh, make you know try to get something to happen. And well, yeah, I, I wonder also, by the way, whether this you know, especially this this other guy who says it was back in January. I think it's interesting that he decided to release this so much later on. But but James, uh, I appreciate you taking a another uh, a look at this like the rest of us try to figure out what's really going on. Eric in Wheeling, West Virginia. Eric, we don't have too much time, but I want to get you in. Hey, Buck, I read a report today, and I don't know if you covered it already, but uh, I heard there was a possible peace treaty between Pyongyang and Seoul, and was that true? And doesn't that seem kind of phony or too good to be true? Uh, yeah, it's not done yet. It's really just the president blessing talks to that end between North and South Korea, but that'll be well, what we're looking at here in terms of the news cycle is re- really a first step in what will be a very long process. Um People like to point out that North and South Korea are still technically at war. Well, I mean, they didn't have a, a, a true treaty. I mean, they're, they're at really at a ceasefire stage, but they're obviously not at war in the sense that they're not still fighting each other. 
Um, but uh, that's something we'll continue to look at. But I don't have much for you on that today, Eric, because I think really what's going to move the needle is the Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un. And, and South Korea and North Korea right now, they could do some important work, but it's very, very early in that process. So we'll have to see. But thanks for calling in, Eric. I appreciate it. Uh, team, we got to talk about uh, some tax day stuff coming up here. I am no fan of paying taxes. I'm sure you're not either. But what about paying a ton of money for public employees to live lavishly? We'll talk about that more. So, team, I'm out in California this week, and there's a lot of uh, great restaurants, a lot of great bars, and, and there's some fantastic tequila. But I've got to tell you, none of it measures up for me to G4 tequila. G4 is the pinnacle of master distiller Felipe Camarena's passion for crafting truly great tequila. He's considered kind of a mad scientist in the tequila industry because Camarena uses a unique distillation process of 50% harvested rainwater and 50% spring water. The Camarena family is all involved in this business, and they make sure the agave plants have been growing to the perfect length before they actually use them in this process. There are no chemicals ever used, and they plant fruit trees in the agave fields to attract pollinators. Amazing stuff. Visit G4Tequila.com for more details. I love this product. You're going to really like it. I'm telling you. G4Tequila.com or give them a like on Facebook at Facebook.com slash G4Tequila. He's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome to Hour 2 of the Buck Sexton Show, folks. Tax Day. I want to talk to you about the good, the bad, and the ugly of taxes. Well, taxes, it's mostly mostly bad and or ugly. Not not a good situation. I think taxes in this country are way too high. And while I applaud the uh, Trump administration's, and look, it's the Republican Party, too, actually getting it done on taxes, uh, the tax cut, I, I feel like there are a lot of ways we can make this situation better for ourselves. Um, and... We also need to deal with how how the tax money that is being taken from all of us currently is spent. And for those of you who are like, well, you know, my income taxes aren't that bad. What are your property taxes like? Your property taxes aren't that bad. What are you what are the taxes like whenever you buy a sandwich? They're just around you all the time. They're everywhere. The government always, I was gonna say has its hand out, but that's not true. The government has its hand in your pocket. It's not saying, hey, it'd be nice if you gave us a little bit of money to help us out, you know, pay for things. No, the government's saying, that's mine. I'll take that. Thank you. You don't get the option of saying, I don't, I don't really think that's a good way for you to spend my funds. You don't even get to know how they spend the funds, really. And it's, uh, it's troubling when you look more closely. And the states, I think, it's in some cases, it's easier to understand because the, the near-term effects of uh, overspending or more easily felt, whereas because of our federal government and the, the Fed and the reserve currency, we can push, we just keep pushing the problem further and further in the future, making it bigger and bigger and worse, but buying us some time. So you can take the perspective of we should party while the partying is good, I guess. And unfortunately, speaking of parties, that's what both Democrats and Republicans, I think, are doing right now, which is a little, a little troublesome. But on the good, I said I'd mention the good, and you had a... Mr. Mitch McConnell out there talking about on tax day, talking about how we should be happy about the Republican tax cut. Let's let's give some credit where it's due. We do have a tax cut that is bringing some jobs in the country is helping out with some stuff. And we got Mitch McConnell 
not exactly the most compelling spokesperson out there possible for this, but, you know, it is what it is. Play 15, please. Well, 80 to 90 percent of the American people get tax relief out of this bill. Uh, Not a single Democrat voted for it. Uh, They want to take this to the American people, and we're happy to do that, to see whether the American people think it's a good idea for us to let them keep more of their hard-earned money rather than sending it to us to be spent on whatever we choose to spend it on. I think it really kind of sums up the major differences between the parties these days, Neil. Uh, I got a letter from all but three of them uh, before we passed the tax bill uh, saying what kind of tax reform they would be willing to support. And it was all about class envy and wealth transfer. It had nothing to do with actually getting the economy growing. And in the end, of course, even the three who didn't sign the letter didn't vote for it. Even the three didn't sign the letter. Those of you who watch Beverly Hills Cop, uh, the movie, is this the man who wrecked the buffet at the Harrow Club this morning, who disabled an unmarked unit with a... You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, movie quote thrown in there for you just in case. Keep you on your toes, folks. Uh, So, yeah, okay, the tax cut, it's good. Democrats don't like it. Nancy Pelosi, it's going to come back to haunt her. I don't know, not that she really cares. That She's like, hey, it's crumbs. It's not crumbs for people that are struggling, struggling to pay down credit card debt, that are worried they're going to get behind on their mortgage. You know, $1,000 here, $2,000 there is really significant. And uh, that's something that I think the Democrats expose themselves on in a way that Republicans, as inept as Republicans can be on messaging sometimes, they will capitalize on the, um, you know, we need to find a better, because Marie Antoinette was not the let them eat cake lady that people say she was in history. It's actually not accurate. She's very, very young. She's actually very devout Catholic. Uh, you know, she's got a bad rap. I don't know how we rehab Marie Antoinette, but we need someone who's very, uh, you know, from history who who takes a Pelosi-esque view of like, well, I'm super rich and like, I'm going to pretend to care about the poor people, but can't really relate. Uh, so the, the tax cuts are a good thing. Uh, Republicans have, have the upper hand on this one. We've seen this now. In fact, uh, I, I like this soundbite from a small business owner, uh, Irina Villarino, uh, talking about increasing salaries. Play seven, please. It's a promise of what the tax cuts is going to bring. Um, in the near future. And so what we're seeing is with the increments of jobs, in order to retain and hire new employees, we've seen that we've had to increase salaries uh, substantially in a very short period of time. So if nothing else, it's helping lower level employees even before it it helps us. Mm -hmm. So it's the promise of what the tax cuts is going to bring us, that we can reinvest this money into our businesses and uh, that we can see the fruits of our labor. So people making more money is a good thing. We should all be happy about that. So there's something to celebrate too strong a word, but we should certainly take stock of forward progress here on tax day. Tax situation is better now than it was a year ago, and we do have Trump and the Republican Party to thank for that. Now, now that I've done that, now I've done the good, let's get to the bad and the ugly, which will be more fun, more fun to talk about. Not, not, as, uh, not as happy, certainly, but uh, where's your money going? Uh, how does it work at the state level in particular? And what you find out is that the number one reason that you have states and, and cities and municipalities, uh, which I guess city and municipality, that's just a way to uh, repeat myself, but uh, states and cities, how do they get themselves into real problems when it comes to debt and spending? 
And the number one answer I see time and time again is, who wants to take a guess? I know I can't hear you, but I feel like I can, team. I feel like I can hear you across the country. The answer is, oh, that's right. They got it here in the hub. They know. Public sector pensions. Government employee payouts, my friends. How rich can they, how rich can they get? And I mean rich as in actually rich, not in the kind of metaphorical sense of like, you know, it seems like it's rich for a public employee uh, person. No, no. I mean actually like rich people because that's the kind of pensions they're getting. Let me take a case case in point here. And this is courtesy of uh, the New York Times, which I give credit for pulling all this together. But Oregon, uh, we've got some fantastic members of Team Buck who live in Oregon. Very nice state. I've actually been out to, uh, I really enjoy Portland. And, and I like Cannon Beach very much, too. Very pretty place. But uh, Oregon, uh, Oregon has a problem. And the problem is that it's running out of money. And the reason it's running out of money, and this is also happening for those of you listening in uh, Kentucky and Connecticut and New Jersey and Illinois. And, oh, I could go, and, I could go on and on and on. Happening in a lot of places. So, Oregon, you got to think of this like a case study. And I always have to make sure I do not slip into this New Yorker habit of calling it Oregon. (sighs) Like saying Nevada instead of Nevada. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. So Oregon's got a problem of paying people who are retirees from the public public sector, government employees of the state of Oregon, a little too much money. How much is too much, you may say? And remember— when I'm, I'm talking about the pay scale for public sector employees and what's going on with the the debts in these states, you're paying for this. And so when I talk about New Jersey and Oregon and Connecticut and, and, and Illinois and Kentucky and not really a problem so much in Texas. Congrats, Texas. Yes, that's right. You're like the you're like the kid in the class that's doing his homework on this and you don't have to worry as much. But there are some other places, big, big problems here with the public uh, sector unions and, and the, the payouts that they get over time. And. We're still feeling the effects of decisions that were made a decade ago here. And we're just beginning to really get a, get the true sense of how disastrous some of the fiscal decision-making was at the state level. And this is why those of you listening, oh, man, my tax bill this year really stunk. You know, property taxes are way up. If you're in New Jersey, by the way, I don't know how you do it in New Jersey. Your, your property taxes are crazy. Um, you know, this is the problem for people in New York because it used to be, hey, I, I'm not going to live in New York City. I'm going to go out to Jersey, get a little more space, you know, take up the take up a more suburban lifestyle instead of being right here in the thick of it in New York City. But Jersey, you're super, you're pricey now, man. Your your real estate uh, taxes are going way up and have been for a long time. So you're paying for this stuff, like what's going on in Oregon, and now we get to get into some of the juicy details, which I find exciting. You ready for this? If I told you that the uh, Public University President Joseph Robertson, who was so this is a guy who was the the president of a public university at the uh, Oregon Health and Science University, which I'm going to tell you right now, I've never heard of before. It could be a fantastic place. I don't know, but I have never heard of it. If I if I ask you to take a guess right now, this is fun. I, I like this game where I'm I'm trying to get you to think about this, but I can't actually hear you. Although you could send me tweets and Facebook messages, and then I'll see it in real time. At Buck Sexton for those of you on Twitter. Got to get on Twitter, folks. You can see what President Trump is saying at any given moment. If nothing else, you got that. So follow Trump and Buck, and from there, all the good things will happen. Uh, Trump and Buck sounds like a buddy comedy. It would actually work pretty well. So at this public university in Oregon, Joseph Robertson uh, retired 
and he is getting not $7,000 a month, which sounds like a really nice pension, not $17,000 a month, month which, which sounds like a great pension. Right? A lot of you are like, whoa, seventeen k a month? My gosh. I'm going to be, uh, like, as I say, setting up the Scrooge McDuck vault and swimming around in my gold coins. Now, Joseph Robertson from uh, the great state of Oregon is getting, as a public sector employee who has retired, $76,111 a month. Not a year, each month. <laughs> okay, so some of you are sitting there like, what? That's a, that's a lot of money. And... Uh, there are more than 2,000 people in Oregon alone, which is not a huge state by population, who have pensions exceeding $100,000 a year. Hmm. That seems like a pretty pretty nice setup. In fact, you have Mike Bellotti from the University of Oregon football uh, team who is getting a pension of $46,000 a month. Um, and now part of this is driven by the, the specific way that uh, Oregon does its. But I'm sure this is similar in a lot of the state. A lot of the folks listening right now, your states have similar programs in place. Oregon's is particularly bad because usually pensions are calculated on a um, basis of what your final years of earning is. There's some formula and, you know, blah, 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 abracadabra, you know, poof, here's your number. Right. And that's how it works. And so if you've been if you're a public employee and you're making 75 K and then 80 K and then 77 or you know, usually you will go up only. But, you know, 75, 80 and 82, they'll do some averaging of it. And that's your pension. Right. So still, by the way, per annum, that's a really nice pension. That's great. Sign me up. Um, but the way they do it in Oregon is if you're a public sector employee and this was back in the uh, back in the early 2000s, they come up with this they will let you any additional income you get outside of your job gets gets to be part of your pension package so if you're making money elsewhere i don't know if you're like a you know uh, on uh, on the side antiques dealer or something but if you've got a couple of years there where you jack up uh, your earnings the state pays you based on that so it's not even just money you're making for the state that gets factored in this other place too and this just means you got these cra- you got some of these crazy outliers like $76,000 and this is another version of a story that's been told uh, and has gotten out there finally in this country where, like, I'm in California right now. I'm in L.A., as you know. And there were some cities here, small cities that I had never, honestly, that I had never heard of before. Um, and I'm trying to remember what some of them were off the top of my head. But some small cities here that had effectively completely cut all services and were paying the city manager like 800 grand. You know, we're paying the mayor of whatever tiny town in California, you know, $350,000 a year in salary, but there were, there were like two cops and they're being borrowed from a neighboring jurisdiction. And that, that got the, the slap down after people figured out what was going on here. Uh, but this is another version of that, which is the, forget about salaries, the pensions, because you don't feel the, the squeeze on that as a taxpayer. Remember, it's tax day now. You don't feel the squeeze on that until much later on. And it's so much easier for uh, public sector unions to kind of put a lot of a lot of fat in the in the contracts that won't come due for quite a while, and they also base their calculations on what the stock market was doing ten years ago. They're saying, "Oh, you know, we're gonna for our pension program 
and this is true in a lot of states, right? If you're li- if you're living uh, if you live in Illinois right now, New York, any of the coastal states of in the Northeast, really, uh, certainly in California, they base pension projections on a number, and then that's just what the it doesn't doesn't matter if they hit it or not. They still say, well, you know, we're going to make seven percent a year for the fund, and then we're, we're going to get all of our uh, you know all of our teachers are going to get X amount of uh, their pensions paid for. Okay. I, I gotta I gotta take a take a quick break here for a second for our sponsor and then we come back. What does this mean as you're writing your final and have, probably all of you have done your taxes already? If you haven't, you got a reprieve here because the system went down today, the IRS system. But um, we'll come back to what this means for these cities. And uh, let me talk to you a bit now for uh, for a moment about Black Rifle Coffee. I'm a subscriber. I get Black Rifle Coffee delivered each month, and it's my coffee for the month now. I get it in K-Cups because i got a K-Cup machine, but you can have it whole bean. You can have it ground. Silencer smooth, full black, caffeinated as heck. They've got phenomenal coffee blends for you. You're going to love the taste of it, and also you're going to love being able to support guys who are patriots, who serve their country, who are all about giving back to veterans, the veteran community, employing veterans, and building a great American brand in the process. So support veterans, support great coffee, and this show. Go to BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck. That's BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck. And please use that coupon code, good for you and good for me, of uh, buck15. That's buck15. That gives a heads up to the Black Rifle folks that you're part of Team Buck and you want to support them and this show. It also gets you a 15% discount, by the way. And if you're going to be a subscriber, let me tell you, that adds up, and it's great. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash buck. We'll be right back. I just wanted to close up the conversation here uh, before we move on to the Gorsuch ruling on immigration. And, and I might even talk to you about this uh, Southwest flight that just got just terrifying. A, a engine blew up. Someone killed him. And really, gosh, um, share some thoughts on that one. Uh, but I, I wanted to finish our discussion here of uh, taxes and tax day uh, because, as I've said, the, the biggest problem for state budgets is, is public sector unions. And the pension obligations that get racked up by some of these states. And it's just out of control. And those of you who work in the private sector need to understand that a lot of places, uh, state governments allow employees to be very self-paced, almost unfireable, you know, short of real malfeasance, theft, or criminal activity, uh, almost unfireable. And they have these great pensions that are ironclad. And in some cases, it needs like a, an amendment to the state constitution to not pay them the obligations that people didn't even realize the state employees were going to get paid because it's 10 years down the line. And what that means is that going back to our Oregon case study right now, uh, in a place like Oregon, you have, you know, guys, they ask somebody named, uh, named Bruce in this who makes $54,000 a year. And he has, uh, he's a retired car. He was a, uh, he was a carpenter. He's now retired, but he made an average of $54,000 a year. He says he's been swinging a hammer for 45 years. And he says it's an affront to everybody who pays taxes, and he's right. And a lot of you across the country, whether you know it or not, your state government is turning you upside down and uh, and flipping out your pockets, trying to see what kind of change they can get out of you, making you do it, or else they're going to seize your house and come after you for back taxes and everything else, while they are paying these uh, fat cat pensions to people that haven't worked in many, many years. And it's just wrong. And it needs a lot more attention, uh, I think, from the, from the national media. It's the biggest problem you've got in some of these states. And in Oregon, 
It means that you have uh, you have schools that are having to lay off teachers, having to get rid of programs. I mean, current teachers, right? You have uh, law enforcement. I think there was a case that was uh, it was mentioned in this article where there was a, a shooting on a school property, and it took law enforcement two hours to get there. Just not because the law enforcement was derelict. They're just really far away because they don't have any cops in the area where the shooting happened because they can't afford them. I've spoken to friends of mine who are prosecutors in some uh, rural areas of the country in states where the the budget, there's huge shortfalls. And they say, you know, that, that the feds have to step in. Federal prosecutors have to step in and help out on cases that are generally thought of as more state-level cases because they don't have the resources to prosecute the bad guys. So you're cutting back on roads, on schools, on teachers, on police, on fire to pay the pension benefits that a lot of people in states like Oregon and across the country don't even realize are being paid out. So, you know, pay, this is something it's incumbent upon all of us to know what's going on in our own states about this. In California, you know, I love you guys. My team, but California, I'm out here with you now. I don't know what to say. Your state's crazy. <laughs> I don't know how to fix what's going on here, man. It's so beautiful, though, and the people are lovely. But uh, your state government's got some, got some, ish, got some issues. Um, I want to talk to you about this uh, Gorsuch ruling. He went with the, the liberals on the court. Why? He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Gorsuch has been the refrain for many people, many conservatives, who have had their, uh, either had their doubts or or are staunch defenders of the president. But it is one of those points on the board moments that you can't deny, right? A Supreme Court justice in the mold of a, of a Scalia, conservative, May he rest in peace. Uh, conservative like Scalia. And it's no matter what happens with Trump going forward, no matter what you think of what's gone on with Trump thus far, having Gorsuch on the Supreme Court is an asset to constitutionalism and to conservatism. That said, <laughs> right? You knew there was a but coming. I mean, I, I can't pretend that there wasn't going to be a but. Uh, that said, Gorsuch... In a in a case uh, that just got just got decided today, went with the liberals on the court on this one, and it has to do with immigration. So the, the left is trying to make a lot out of this, saying that uh, I think in part just there's there's some uh, Schadenfreude here, there's some some bliss at the suffering of conservatives, just even at the notion. That Supreme Court just uh, Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch is not the rock solid conservative that we have been led to believe he is. So, I want to break this down a little bit more. Uh, so, the the case in question here is about whether or not uh, you can what counts as a violent crime for the purposes of automatic expulsion from the country as in as an illegal alien for immigration violation uh, purposes right so if you are in the country illegally and dhs uh, dhs wants to get rid of wants to deport you that's the term i was I, I forgot the term for a second deport if they want to deport you and you have been committed of certain crime you have committed certain crimes they have effectively the the ability to just do it Right to to send you out of the country 
and it this makes it a lot easier. But this was challenged. Uh, not really all that surprising here that it would be challenged by the left. And here's, and this has been challenged a few times, by the way. Uh, it went to 4-4 in the past and then decided to rehear this one. Um, and the Ninth Circuit, no surprise here, Ninth Circuit U.S. Court. You know the Ninth Circus. We've talked about that before. A lot of, a lot of never-Trump judiciary stuff going on there. Uh, ruled that the clause that DHS was relying on here was too vague when it came to the deportation of James DiMaia, who was an immigrant from the Philippines convicted of two burglaries. Now, those burglaries were aggravated felonies under the law, uh, but there was no violence per se in the commission of those crimes. Now, the, the, the center of the argument here is, Okay, we, we're trying to make it so that there's a uh, prioritization of deportation in the law for criminal, uh, for criminal folks um, out there uh, who have com- you know have, have done something that is uh, clearly uh, the violation of the law. But now, can they be in addition to their illegal status? So you've got people who are illegal aliens. And if they're convicted of a certain crime, and those crimes are violent crime, sexual assault, uh, they, under D, under the current regulations of the DHS, are supposed to just, you're, you're gone, right? You do not pass go, do not collect $200, you're an illegal alien, you did one of these things, you're out. And Gorsuch went along with the liberals here. Now, the liberals on the court... Just You, you know they're going to be against this because anything they can do to make it harder to deport illegal aliens, they'll do. Whatever interpretation of the law they have to come up with, whatever way they have to stretch statutes, they'll do it because they are pro-illegal. They're not, they're not just neutral on the subject of illegal aliens, which in and of itself is strange for judges to not be opposed to the illegality inherent in being an illegal alien, right? But they're actually pro-illegal alien now on the left. In the state of California, where I am right now, is pro-illegal alien, not neutral. Not even, you know, just kind of willing to make some allowances here and there. They're, they, are, they are now actively engaged in the process of lobbying for illegal aliens at every turn. So the way that Gorsuch comes down on this one, it's not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> some of you are like, Gorsuch, no! What have you done? And there is a part of me that says, how is it, folks? The conservative jurists are so principled that they will, for reasons of law and legal interpretation, go along with the liberals who always will just push for whatever political outcome they want. Right. They like something. They'll find a legal justification for it. That's the way that the liberal justice uh, justices on the court approach these issues. You know, they, they like the way that their decision will impact American society, culture and law. They they write the legal justification after they've decided what the outcome should be. Right? Activist judges legislating from the bench. We see all this. We know it. Been around a long time. Conservatives, much to our chagrin, on the court, especially on issues like individual rights, civil liberties, process and procedure involving law enforcement, will sometimes say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa hold up a second. Even though I don't like what this will mean." As a decision, as a matter of law, I have to go with the liberals on this one. 
And I, I think that's what you see when you look at the, the Gorsuch opinion here. That's what um, that's what you have. Gorsuch isn't saying that you can't have a DHS policy to uh, kick people out of the country who, remember, under existing law are supposed to be deported anyway. But you can't rapid uh, fast track them and, and prioritize them based on v- what he says is vague law. And the liberals went along with this, too. Uh, he wrote that, quote, the, the law of silence leaves judges to their intuitions and people to their fate. In my judgment, the Constitution demands more. Uh, in his concurring opinion, Gorsuch wrote, just take the crime at issue in this case, California burglary. This happened in California, no surprise, which applies to everyone from armed home intruders to door to door salesmen peddling shady products. How on that vast spectrum is anyone supposed to locate the ordinary case and say whether it includes a substantial risk of physical force? The truth is no one knows. So what he's saying here is you can't have a uh, you, you can't have federal policy to be based on. Well, you didn't have like, sexual assault. That's violence. You're gone. Right. Do not pass. Go. You're out. You serve your sentence. You do the crime. You do the time and you're tossed out of the country. Attacking someone, assault, you know, assault with a deadly weapon, murder, you, you, you punch someone in the face, whatever it is, you're gone. Violence is violence. That part of it stands. That part of it's fine. Um, but crimes like burglary. Is burglary a crime of violence is where Gorsuch is coming down here for the purposes of DHS enforcing uh, immigration law. Does that count? You know, and you get it, you know, he's DWI. Is that a crime of violence? We'd all say, no, it's not a crime of violence. Well, people can be criminally uh, responsible for violence if the DWI goes wrong and they, you know, they hit someone on the street. Guess what? That's involuntary manslaughter. That's a crime of violence. So there are ways to take what is a sort of an open-ended definition here and apply it to a whole lot of different crimes. Now, I think I'm guessing a lot of you listening are probably going to say, um, hold on a second, hold on a second, Buck. Illegal aliens should be deported no matter what. Now, that's uh, another part of the discussion. <laughs> that's something else. Gorsuch is just saying here with this DHS policy, uh, you, you need greater clarity. Um, and you need, to have it, you need to have it be established as a, as a matter of law what is a violent crime and the possibility of violence versus actual violence and how the law deals with that. So I don't think this is quite the big slapdown of this. And, and, I, and I will be completely honest with you. I did not have a chance to read through all of the – I know. I know don't, be, don't, don't, don't be mad at me. Uh, I didn't get to read through all of the uh, opinions today because I'm traveling around California meeting with all kinds of folks and doing important things. I will go over it, though, in some more detail other than just reading the original uh, concurrence and give – if I have any additional thoughts on this once I've spent more time in the actual case, I will – let you know, but it's okay. Don't don't think that the Gorsuch thing is you know it's it's not a lost cause. It's gonna be fine. It's gonna be fine. I wish our guys. Well, I know principle. Hey, yeah, I get it. They got to go with principle, and sometimes that means the left wins. But just understand, the leftist judges they never go with principle. They just go with power and winning. So it's the world we live in. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. You want to call in and chat? I am seeing some interesting stuff about North Korea. We might get to that in the next hour if we have time. And uh, I got, I got, we got a lot, a lot going on here. Got a lot going on. I'll be uh, right back, team. Stay with me.
I have some breaking news to share with you, team. Uh, it's uh, sad, uh, but I do have to tell you uh, what's going on. Uh, we just have word in here that former First Lady Barbara Bush has passed away at the age of 92, according to a Bush family spokesman. So uh, it is confirmed that uh, Barbara Bush has has died. Um, and uh, thoughts and prayers to the family. And uh, may she rest in peace. A, a woman who I, I think is was universally considered to be a class act. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'm sure it's a tough time for her family, but you know, she led a, a really exceptional exceptional life and, and was a great uh, role model for young, uh, well, for women across the country. And uh, so I, I just had to bring that. I, I don't have much more other than just the breaking news that, sure enough, uh, Barbara Bush has passed away at the age of 92. Uh, I also have some other breaking news here um, that just came in. Uh, you have a an FBI officer uh, who has pleaded guilty uh, to passing classified information to a not, uh, not uh, described, but there's some reports about which outlet, uh, online news outlet. Uh, a former Minnesota FBI agent has pleaded guilty to leaking classified information. Uh, two counts, I think, uh, under the Espionage Act. So, I mean, they're they're going after him with with uh, the big stuff here. And it was about I'm trying to see here the the agent's name you know, who's indicted here. Let me just make sure I have this right. Terry Albury, um, and the Washington Washington Times are saying that he. Leaked information, it is believed, around FBI source something or other. I'm not really. Uh, the FBI secret rules series, according to this piece in the Washington Times. And uh, so there you have it. I actually am not familiar with that uh, that series of pieces, so I have to, I'll have to look up what they are. But here's what I take from this. Uh, you have a guy, he's probably going to get, if I had to guess, you know, he's, plead, he's pleaded guilty, and he's probably going to get, Maybe uh, 18 months, two years, maybe three. Three would be pretty harsh under the circumstances of, of what uh, of how these cases are usually treated, especially when someone pleads guilty. If you fight these charges, uh, then you got to do the full federal time, and that's uh, that's rough when you're talking about anything involving the uh, espionage espionage act, which I will say is really a a problematically vague statute. Uh, to begin with, I would like to see that pared down substantially. Uh, you know, if, if you're going to give Hillary Clinton the benefit of the doubt on, and and more than that, I'm it's, I'm sorry, forget benefit of the doubt. If you're going to basically bail Hillary out because she wasn't like I, I know I'm breaking the law and I love it. I mean, if, if you're going to say that's okay with her emails, then anyone who is acting in in relatively good faith, uh, or or is not or does not think that what they're doing is going to harm U.S. national defense or national security, it should at least be an affirmative defense, right? It doesn't mean you get away with whatever it is, but if you can say, look, I you know, I either didn't know or I didn't think, or because you, you can't have two systems of justice here. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons we see with the Hillary and Trump DOJ disparate treatment. You, you can't have the elites, especially on one side of the political spectrum, treated differently than the elites on the other, and you can't have the elites treated differently than normal folks. That's one of the problems I didn't get to yesterday. I, you know, I could have gone on and on about the Comey interview forever. I didn't even talk about his weird, like, red wine out of a paper cup thing that he talked about, you know. Whew. I'm not a Comey fan. 
Uh, but one thing he said is, you know, Hillary, uh, in, in other cases, just like Hillary's, where there wasn't ill intent that was provable. Remember, not just ill intent, ill intent that was provable, right? Having a, a mens rea, guilty state of mind. And and I thought, well, what about there was a, there was a Navy sailor uh, who was on a submarine who took a photo with his phone of a classified area, did not distribute it, did not send it to anyone, just had it on his phone. I think he got... Did he get a year? I'm just going off of memory here. I might be off on that one. But he had no ill intent. He's just like, oh, that looks cool. Did he know? Should he have known? Sure. But he wasn't like, oh, that looks cool. Now let me send this photo to, you know, an agent of a foreign power or something. Or let me even publish this for everyone to see. He took it. Never got out. Deleted it. Prison time. So, you know, so Comey's just not telling the truth when he says that people who don't have ill intent don't go to prison for Espionage Act violations. That's just not accurate. Uh, but this guy, the FBI, uh, this former FBI agent out of uh, Minnesota, you know, he's he's gotten uh, the full force of the DOJ dropped on him. It's going to be rough. Um, I would just note that, uh, you know, we got to see see how they treat him and see how they will treat some of the, I think, still to be determined. But it's going to happen. They're going to find somebody who was involved in the anti-Trump leaks. And that person is not going to be a small fish, not going to be a small fry. It's going to be someone who probably you already know that person's name. I'm just, I am analyzing. I am trying to predict. I cannot say for certain. But I got some names in my head of people that gave classified information that I think, I don't know, that I think, based on the news reports, gave classified information to uh, hurt the Trump administration. And you can think of what some of those leaks are just like I can. And I want you to all pay very close attention to how this FBI agent out of a former FBI agent out of Minnesota is treated, what he faces in terms of his sentence and how the media acts in the way they report on this one versus down the line. If we get a name you already know from DOJ or FBI, someone who's already been very openly anti-Trump, how they will circle the wagons. They will mount a First Amendment defense. They will go to the mat. They will do whatever it takes to make a case that not only should that person not face serious punishment, but they should face no punishment, no charges whatsoever, because they will say that under the circumstances of the hashtag resistance, um, they will. Uh, oh, but yeah, he was sentenced by the, the Navy sailor. I just got producer Mike to get sentenced to a year in prison for that, folks. A year in prison for a photo that no one saw that didn't go anywhere. Um, All right, we'll probably talk North Korea coming up here, but we've got a lot more uh, scheduled. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Welcome to Hour 3 of the Buck Sexton Show. Thank you very much for being here. Gus, my friends, much, much to uh, get into today. We'll be joined a little later in the hour by our uh, buddy Benny Johnson from The Daily Caller, who's going to be talking to us about his latest, or or the latest that I know of, run-in with uh, Antifa. So he'll tell us how that went. Also, of course, we'll end, as usual, with some of your thoughts in uh, Roll Call. And uh, Kim Strassel of The Wall Street Journal to give us her sense of where the Comey the Comey Palooza with the media is going, and also the Inspector General report from the uh, FBI. What will that mean? McCabe, 
Mr. Uh, you know, plays by the book, guy you can trust, straight shooter, kind of a self-aggrandizing liar from what you see in the Inspector General report. And who wants to guess whether he's really anti-Trump or not? Hmm. I think we all have our ideas there. Uh, so uh, I wanted to get into in, in, in uh, a couple of things here. I wanted to get into two different stories if I can, if I have time. Uh, one of them is about Judge Kimba Wood. You were like, fuck, who is Judge Kimba Wood? Well, she is the uh, presiding judge over the decision to release the uh, client list of Cohen, Trump's attorney. And as I'm sure many of you know, uh, Sean Hannity's name got pulled into that, and the media tried to make a really big deal of it. It's not a big deal. I would also note that, well, I'm going to get into the Kimba Wood thing in a second, but Sean's already dealt with it. He said no third-party discussions, just about talking to a lawyer about some advice. And I was just telling a friend of mine today, you know what, I've actually had discussions with friends who are lawyers where I wasn't, it wasn't like, hey, represent me in a case, but it was like, hey, can you give me some, some legal advice on this? And sometimes it would, if it's enough, if it's substantive enough, my communications with them could be considered privileged. Um, and... You know, you get in it, but this is not unusual. It's not strange at all. And I'm happy to see that Fox is uh, saying they have full confidence in Sean as they should. And everything is going to be, everything's going to be fine. Despite the media freak out yesterday, oh my gosh, it's all going to be fine. All right, Sean's fine. Everything's going to be cool. They're just crazy. Uh, meanwhile, Kimba Wood is someone who I think we are allowed to say for a moment, uh, not not someone you would jump to as the most fair-minded possible party here, given that she presided over George Soros. Yes, he had a wedding. Soros, the wedding was a few years ago. And how much, Soros was how much older than the bride? I would like to know. I think Soros was like 75 and the wife was like 30. Uh, But nonetheless, Soros uh, got married and the... uh, the presiding official over the wedding was Kimba Wood. So, you know, that's a thing. You all know this. I've never been married, but many of you listening have. Asking someone to preside over your wedding is a pretty personal thing. Right? If you're looking for one person to do that, you tend to ask someone who is uh, the, the officiant. Isn't that what we call it? Producer Mike, is that right? I think so. The officiant uh, tends to be somebody that you have some personal connection to. So I, I think we can assume that if Kimba Wood is close with the Soroses, I'm just going to put it out there and say that she's not exactly a uh, you know rock ribbed right wing red state you know founding fathers loving Republican. Okay, I'm I'm just going to go out on a limb there and suggest that that's oh also uh, tight with the Clintons. So now you know there now you know there are problems because uh, she's tight with the Clintons, and this just goes to. One, the left doesn't recuse. Just like how I was, I've said before that they have different, uh, uh, you know, they have different rules that they play by. You'll notice that whether it's Loretta Lynch or Kimba Wood, don't recuse. Use your power for the cause. Use your power to advance the uh, the Democrat position here. And uh, you know that's that's something we have to keep an eye on because. This was the fix was in with this one. It's not. I don't think it's going to be that big a deal um, that Kimball Wood did this, but 
if the if the shoe were on the other foot, if this was somebody that had, uh, you know, if, if if this was a judge who had pres- who had made a different decision and had presided over a wedding of one of the Koch brothers and was super tight with, uh, I don't know, the, you know, the Bush family or something, people would say, oh, oh, hold on a second. And there'd be all kinds of noise about that. Uh, we got Kim Strauss joining us in a couple minutes. I, I, I want to make sure we leave ample room for that uh, interview. And so I, I just quickly wanted to know here, and maybe it's on my mind because I, I flew out through some turbulence here to California over the, the well, a few days ago. Uh, this story out of Southwest is terrifying. You have a passenger dead, so you had a fatality, which I think is the first commercial air fatality in the United States in, in over a year. Right, not including private private aircraft, um, and uh, you can look at the photos of this and what happened. And this is like this is the nightmare made real. You know, no matter how much they tell you, it really does remind me of shark attacks. No matter how much they tell you, oh, the numbers are on your side and uh, it's very very safe and you don't have to worry. You know, when you're on that plane, and a lot of you know what I, you know what I mean when you're there and. If you've ever been on a flight, as I have, where all of a sudden the uh, airline attendants, formerly known as stewardesses, uh, make a, a a beeline for the seats and kind of strap in because it's about to get really, really rough. I don't. Maybe some of you don't get bothered by it at all, but I have that. What if I'm the outlier here? You know, what if this is going to go really bad? And, and turbulence on planes. There's a real feeling of of uh, helplessness that you get from that. But you always, at least I try to, I assume that, uh, yeah, zero commercial deaths in 2017. I was right. Thanks, Producer Mike. Uh, you know, you always assume, well, the numbers are on my side. It's fine. I see something like this, and now it's going to stay with me. And I know, look, it's a tragedy for, for this person's family, and it's a, it's a you know, this woman. And so a woman was almost dragged out of the plane in midair, sucked out of the plane at 30,000 feet. Terrifying, right? Everyone saw that, too. Someone was killed by shrapnel, and someone was almost sucked out of the plane. Because the engine exploded in midair, uh, but you know you see this, and it's like when there's a really terrible shark attack. Which you're talking about similar numbers now. I mean, there's probably a fatal shark attack in the U.S. each year, something like that. Um, and even you know, every time you go in the water, for a lot of you, and maybe I'm more scared than you are about this. You go in the water though, as you've read about a fatal shark attack. It doesn't matter what the odds are, what the numbers are. You. Have that in the back of your mind. It just is a reminder of how human fear works and how the, the narrative that you construct in your own mind, you can tell yourself, you can try, try to be as, as fact-based and reasonable as you can, but see a, a terrible tragedy like this at Southwest. And I know, you know, next time I get on a plane, which is going to be in a couple of days, you know, this is every time you get a good jolt and you get a little, little scared, a little freaked out, it's a, it's a reminder of that. All right, we're going to have uh, Kim joining us here. She's got some very interesting thoughts on uh, what Comey was not asked. What should Comey have been asked that he wasn't? Uh, we'll take you into that and uh, much, and then we'll get a little update from Antifa and a few. So stay with me. So the aftermath of Comey Palooza over the weekend continues, and, and there's also more and more folks who are realizing that, you know, there's the stuff that we wish Comey would tell us, and and he didn't, and then there's also what we're going to find out about McCabe, number two at the FBI for quite a while, and someone who has been fired, who the FBI has taken action against, the OIG, the Office of the Inspector General, has this very interesting comprehensive report, or actually just the beginning of what will be a more comprehensive report. We've got somebody with us now who can look into all of this with us. Uh, Kim Strassel is on the line. She's on the Wall Street Journal, uh, Wall Street Journal editorial board. She's also a author 
uh, and just a fantastic lady all around. Kim, thanks for making the time. Hi, Buck. So, uh, Comey, you had a thread on the questions Comey wasn't asked that you would like to ask him. You had a lot of them, but I just wondered, what are some of the the big ones? What are the ones you're like, you know what, Stephanopoulos, if you really wanted to get into some stuff here, you would have asked him the following. Well, it was really noticeable, Buck, that there were some things that Mr. Comey didn't seem to want to talk about, and Mr. Stephanopoulos was happy enough to ignore Uh, Most of those had to go to the entire FBI handling in 2016 of the Steele dossier uh, and the surveillance warrant against Carter Page. And obviously this matters because what happened here was unprecedented. We had one presidential campaign ginning up opposition research, a scandalous, scurrilous document, uh, and getting it, using it to get the FBI to investigate the rival political campaign. And he should have had to answer some questions about that. You would think so. But uh, it seemed like Stephanopoulos was willing to take Comey's word for it a lot on some of these issues. Like, for example, the presence of classified information that Comey, you know, can kind of neither confirm nor deny other than just saying that, yeah, it's there, but I can't talk about it. That in decades, historians would look at and may cast aspersions upon his decision making. Now, I found that whole Comey thread that he was worried about what people would think in 30 years about information that would then become public that's not public now to just be like Comey in fantasy land. Oh, so convenient, isn't it? Uh, Because he can allude to the idea that there was very serious things he had to take into consideration, but he just can't tell you about them. I actually felt sorry, by the way, the context of that bit of conversation had to do with Loretta Lynch, the former AG, and supposedly something he knew about her or that. And she can't even defend herself in a situation like that. And I think it gives an idea into Comey's tactics. But, you know, to get back to the, the dossier, no one asked him a single question. For instance, did you know that a, uh, a an opposition research firm called Fusion GPS that makes a, a career out of dragging people's reputations through the mud was the group that had hired Christopher Steele? Uh, when were you aware that this, I mean, at some point, by the way, Comey said that he, he knew that there was a Democratic political group that had hired uh, Steele to do this, but he didn't know exactly which one. Why not? You know, that would seem to be relevant information. And if you had found out that it was the Clinton campaign, would have changed any of your actions? I would think so. But uh, given the way that all of it went down, it seems like Comey was was writing writing rules as he went along and then saying, well, those are the rules. (laughs) So including stepping in front of the attorney general and deciding that an FBI director is going to act as uh, as attorney general when it is convenient for the reputation of the institutions involved. Another thing that he did that I just find completely uh, and, and utterly indefensible. But nonetheless, we're, we're speaking to Kim Strassel, everyone. She's a Wall Street Journal editorial columnist. By the way, if you have not already, pick up a copy of her book, The Intimidation Game, How the Left is Silencing Free Speech. Uh, Kim, the McCabe Inspector General report. I, I'm hoping to do a little more of a deep dive with uh, with the folks listening later in the week about just what it said, because it looks really bad for McCabe. The, the early McCabe defenders are kind of hoping that a lot of this, I think, passes without much more attention. What can you tell us about what what you see that matters in the report thus far, and also what's coming down the line, because there's going to be more. 
There are two main claims. One is that he engaged in an unauthorized disclosure of information to the media. And what's important about that IG report is it eviscerates what McCabe was claiming as a defense when he argued, well, you know, that we sometimes make leaks and if it's in the public interest. And what was very clear about the the IG report was in it straight out said that this was in nobody's interest but Andrew McCabe's uh, in that he was attempting to defend his personal reputation. And that's why he blew the cover on a probe that no one had known about before, which was into the Clinton Foundation. Um, the second thing was obviously finding that he had lied on multiple occasions and at least three times under oath. And that brings up, in my mind, a very important question that someone should force the Department of Justice to answer, which is, are they going to prosecute him? And if not, because if not, that is a clear double standard and that you have average Americans going to jail all the time for lying to the feds. And if they have a different level by which they hold their own people accountable, everyone ought to understand why. And there's going to be more coming out, right? We, we know that the initial claims right now that McCabe had as to what he did and how he was so innocent and everything. And, and I told everyone, look, it, it's really unusual for an institution like that to throw someone under the bus using its own internal mechanisms unless they have really messed up, right? It, it, it's You get more than the benefit of the doubt when you're senior in the bureaucracy and the bureaucratic mechanisms, whether it's a DOJ or any of the other big federal three-letter agencies, uh, they're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. And he didn't get it here at all. He got thrown under the, not thrown under the bus, he got thrown out. Um, what do we know about the report that's coming out, though, in a while? What's this going to be? Well, you're right. It's almost impossible to get fired. And what we know from this next report is that Mr. McCabe's turn in the spotlight is not yet over. And for that matter, neither is Comey's. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how his book holds up when that larger report comes out, because this first piece was just, I would say, maybe 5% of what the IG had been asked to investigate. And we know that the broader report that's now coming out in May is going to look at all of these questions we just discussed. Comey's behavior, was it appropriate? How was the entire Clinton probe handled? Did people follow the rules? What other, who other people within the FBI was leaking? What were they leaking? Um, and so on and so forth. And probably more questions of candor when people were interrogated internally by their colleagues about their behavior. So there's a lot still yet to come. Um, and I'm really looking forward to it myself because in a, in a day and age where it's all about spin, um, I take my hat off to the IG here. He's trying to play it straight, and he looks very credible on these questions. Do you feel like it's uh, we're getting past the the initial line of defense that I've seen against all of the, the folks that are pushing for more information about what happened at DOJ, what happened with Comey and McCabe and I think Sally Yates is going to people are going to find out that there was a lot more stuff going on with Sally Yates than we've heard about thus far. She she strikes me as a a a leader, a, a silent leader or not so silent anymore of the hashtag resistance while at the DOJ. Um, but but, you know, when, when I look at all this stuff, they've been trying to defend it by saying, well, you're attacking the institutions. I think now that we've got misconduct on the record, well, I think now that Comey has shown everybody who he really is and we have Miss Cabe, uh, Miss Cabe. McCabe misconduct on the record, yet Yates having to get fired instead of stepping down. There, there's not just smoke here. There's fire about malfeasance. People call it the deep state. They call it the swamp. But those are real things now, at least at the upper reaches of DOJ and FBI, or they were. 
Yeah, it's great news. And that's a great point is that I agree we have moved beyond the point at which this is just hearsay or anyone claiming that this is a partisan claim on behalf of Republicans. It, it isn't just that we've got the IG on record with at least one uh, example and a serious example of misbehavior at the most senior levels of the FBI. You have Mr. Comey, and by the way, his media tour and the defensive par- posture he's taken to me is a sign that he knows that something's going to come out that doesn't look good. But mostly Jeff Sessions seems reengaged. We now have Uh, This uh, attorney out in Utah who is taking his own investigation, looking at the FISA court abuse and surveillance. We have a man who was appointed, Mr. Lausch, whose job it is to make sure Congress gets the documents that wants it and not overly redacted. So the Justice Department itself appears to have made a statement. We recognize that something went wrong and we are taking steps, maybe still baby steps, but steps to see what it was and then potentially take steps to fix it. Kim Strassel, everybody, look for her columns at thewallstreetjournal.com or wsj.com, where she's an editorial uh, board member. Also check out The Intimidation Game, her book, available on Amazon. Kim, thanks so much for hanging out. Appreciate it. Hey, team, once in a while I like to check in on that group known as uh, Antifa. Remember them? Antifa. Trump is so... Antifa! Oh, there he goes. I love it. Antifa! So uh, they still cause mayhem. (laughs) There you go. They still cause problems. In fact, uh, we got some audio of an event in Chicago from over the weekend where Antifa showed up. Play it. Socialism will win. (laughs) Socialism will win. All right, so you get it. It's, It's a mess. You got a bunch of commies yelling stuff. We got a buddy who was there who's going to tell us how it all went down. Benny Johnson is with us. He is the uh, editor-at-large for The Daily Caller. He was at this Turning Point USA event. Benny, great to have you, and tell us what happened this weekend. Hey, thank you, Buck. Thanks for having me on, man. So uh, so okay. you were at this event. What was it promoting, and what did Antifa do? Yeah, so it's a Turning Point USA event. Turning Point USA is a free market advocacy organization uh, towards young people, college-age kids, uh, younger generation, and what it seeks to do is to tell stories of the free markets and uh, free exchange of ideas. And so they were having extremely, extremely controversial speakers there like me and, uh, you know, really offensive, really out of out of control. Um, for those of you who don't get the joke, I'm just like a normal Midwest deli white guy. Um there's really nothing other than an exchange of free market ideas that was going on at this event. And the event was crashed by Antifa protesters who proceeded to storm the convention center with masks on, uh, raise banners and flags, uh, use those banners to pummel some of the kids in the audience, and then set a garbage bin on fire, causing the Chicago police to surround the building and then claim that it was an act of terrorism. Wow. Uh, so, so, so wait, we got a lot going on here. So you're at this event that's about, and, and the Turning Point USA brings together people for the exchange of ideas. A lot of young folks involved, right? A lot, a lot of college age people. Uh, I, I know, you know, Charlie Kirk is the founder of the organization. People see him on on TV. I, I know Charlie. Um, I actually spoke at a Turning Point event in Dallas, but it was Dallas, right? So it was all love. It was all love and high fives everywhere from people. Uh, but how did Antifa track this thing down just from looking on social media? It seems kind of strange to me that they would find this of all events to make a big deal of. 
I don't know why. I assumed, as many people regularly and typically assume, that uh, leftist ideologies for the uh, openness and understanding of uh, multiple viewpoints and perspectives, particularly the economic perspective that is uh, tending to show the best for the human nature and spirit. However, uh, that apparently isn't the case with Antifa and this really mild-mannered event. I mean, truly, I, I, I see them protesting other big speakers, extremely controversial people, people like Ann Coulter or Milo, who might have, you know, very, very extremist, you might say, views on the right. Um, but this was not that. This, this was really like an under- And you said that they had to shut it down and treat it like a, like some kind of a terrorist incident in terms of what happened when Antifa descended upon you guys. Didn't they also punch someone in the face, uh, one of the speakers? Uh, uh, one of the students, uh, a 17-year-old student named Eric, was hit in the face with a sign. Um, uh, again, if you cannot have, if, if these type of ideas that are being exchanged, these mainstream conservative free market policies, if these are being considered so dangerous that this group has to crash it and violently assault the members of the group and then set the a conference on fire, then you are truly living in a unrecognizable America without the First Amendment. Were you able to explain to any of them, Benny, in, in your in your calm and, and dulcet tones, that uh, that socialism <laughs> is, is in fact not going to win? I'm just <laughs> any converts. I mean, listen, they're welcome to move to any socialist country and eat their own dog and have all of their firearms taken away and have their currency be worthless and live in a house with twelve other people and beg to leave and come back to capitalist America. Yeah, that's one way to go for sure. Well, everyone, look, we're going to continue to follow Antifa's antics across the country. I'm glad uh, that Turning Point USA was able to pull off the event, uh, and I hope they continue to do so. Everyone should check out Benny's latest, dailycaller.com. He is the editor-in-large there. Mr. Benny Johnson, keep on keep on doing what you do, sir. Great to have you join us. You're the man, Buck. All right, team, we're going to hit a quick roll call. We'll be back in just a few. Stay right there. Well, it's been quite a day out here in Los Angeles, team. Enjoying my time. Some beautiful weather out here. In uh, true L.A. fashion, I have experienced some things that I had never experienced before. For example, I had a coffee drink that was a coffee mojito, they said today, where they put fresh mint leaves into an iced coffee it sounds super funky. I'm not going to lie to you. It was kind of amazing. I was into it. Uh, also had my second, uh, my second effort at uh, vegan Mexican food, which may sound a bit funky to you, but I'm telling you, it was quite delicious. So, like, I'm in California, and I'm learning about, like, the 405 and the 101 and the 10 and the 5 and, like, you know, eating, like, all kinds of organic, sustainable vegan and gluten-free cuisine, man. Uh, I'm loving it out here. It's great. A lot of fun. A lot of time in cars, but other than that, fantastic. I actually made it over to Santa Monica today for a little bit, which is quite a quite a beautiful part of town. And uh, tonight, uh, I'm going to be heading out with uh, Miss Molly and enjoying, enjoying a bit of uh, what West Hollywood has to offer. So I hopefully will come back with some stories for y'all. And with that, I would like to get into our latest roll call. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. 
letting this one really breathe today. You know, letting that one go with that roll call. I like that one. That's one of my favorites. We'll, we'll put in some new ones, if not this week, next week. But I, I look forward to the the new roll call music. Uh, is, is like a little bit of a little scoop of sugar at the end of the show to put in my my coffee. Or to put in my non-fat, organic, vegan matcha latte, man. Uh, so that's all good stuff. Now let's get to uh, the inbox, which is facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, for those of you who would like to uh, get in on this action. So uh, here we go. Um, oh, I love it when I get timely messages from folks. Uh, he, first one here is from, a, which I do all the time because you can write to me and I read them as quickly as I can. So Anthony writes, hey, Buck, welcome to California. You'll feel right at home in this left coast atmosphere. But like you in NYC, we learn how to navigate our landscape. Plenty of us sprinkled around the state and the country make the difference when it counts. Hey, in California, you got to do Mexican. I can't recommend this Mexican restaurant any more passionately. It seems like you are in the valley and probably west of you is a restaurant called La Fuentes. I've been going there for 37 plus years. It is absolutely, in my opinion, the best Mexican food bar none. And I grew up here. It's family owned and operated. Well, I will give it a shot. I'm going to run that by Miss Molly and we will see if she is up for a little La Fuente. Sounds great, Anthony. Um, so uh, thank you very much. Oh, he also writes here. I do have to tell you my girlfriend's a bit jealous of you because I don't call her as often as she would like on my lengthy drive home. I tell her it is buck time. <laughs> I work out little deals with her to listen to you. Uh, she's beginning uh, to see the point. Well, Anthony, that is awesome. Thank you so much for the uh, for the kind uh, the kind recommendations and also the support of the show. And and yeah, please convert your girlfriend to Team Buck. We would love to have her, and uh, she is more than welcome. And uh, you know, we can give her a shout out sometime if she writes into. All right, Brian. Next up here on Team Buck's roll call, Buck, forget Creed. I'm surprised you're not more familiar with Iron Maiden, my favorite band of all time. With the numerous historical references in their songs, they are right up your alley. Plus, the quality of music and vocals are beyond bands like Creed. Start with The Trooper, which is based on the charge of the Light Brigade. Then try Aces High and Run to the Hills. Uh, There's also uh, Poshendale and The Klansman, Alexander the Great, Run Silent run deep and that's just a fraction brian i didn't know any of that so thank you first of all for educating me on iron maiden you know i only my only real experience with iron maiden is i think it's bill and ted's bogus journey which is not to be confused with bill and ted's excellent adventure which is a a, a timeless classic Uh, not a not a, a a bit of high cinema you know but a timeless classic nonetheless Excellent. I'm I'm in California now. This is my impression as a New Yorker of California was formed by all these movies in the 80s and 90s. Where everyone's like, I'm a surfer, like, hey, Spicoli, all that stuff. And now I know that no one, literally no one really talks that way. (laughs) So uh, unlike some of the accents we have back east, where if you're in parts of Queens, you're going to have people like, hey, who's Poles? Poles? Who's Poles? Uh, I've never met anyone in California who's like, cowabunga. Uh, But I, I did watch all these movies. Uh, in, in Keanu Reeves, I, I celebrate early Keanu Reeves, too. I don't just like the older stuff or the uh, later on stuff like The Matrix and the John Wick franchise, which are both fantastic. Uh, I like early Keanu. He was in Parenthood, the movie, for those of you who really know early Keanu. And then he was in Point Break, which is clearly amazing. And also Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, although that was before 
point break. But in Bill and Ted's bogus journey, and Brian, this is how I'm getting around to this. Uh, there's a, there's a sequence where they travel back in time and I forget how exactly. I only saw that one once. I've seen excellent adventure many times, but in bogus journey, there's a guy in medieval Europe who's like, put them in the iron maiden. And, uh, they're like, excellent. And then he's like, execute them. And they realize that the iron maiden is actually a torture device. And they're like, bogus. They really don't like it. Yeah. The iron maidens, if you, for those of you who don't know, is like a sarcophagus with spikes in it. Not a fun place to hang out. Uh, medieval torture device. You don't want to, I want to see that. I always remember that. That really left an impression on me. Many years ago, I went uh, on a school trip to Italy. I know, very frou-frou. Went on a school trip to Italy. <laughs> what can I tell you? And we went to, a, I can't remember if it was Venice or Florence. I think it was, no, it was in Venice where they had the like the palazzo, but then they also had some of the old torture devices. And I was very young at the time, but I remember looking and going, ooh, that's not, that wouldn't have been fun. Uh, but the Iron Maiden falls in that category. I cannot think of any Iron Maiden songs, Brian. I will check some out for sure. Uh, or for show. Uh, Cheryl writes, Hi, Buck. Glad to have you visiting our state. Beautiful but crazy as it is. You might not, or you might appreciate the irony, uh, though I've always asked for and preferred the utility and natural decomposition of paper bags. I've adopted the following passive-aggressive protest from my adult son. As you know and stated in your Monday program, my state, California, has voted to charge 10 cents per reusable uh, paper or plastic bag at the grocery store. In protest, I now purchase old-style, one-time-use plastic bags online by the case from a bag supply company. Yes, I walk into my local grocery and or Whole Foods with those evil plastic bags that have my groceries put in them. It is my personal protest to this ludicrous social engineering legislation. I actually get a lot of positive feedback and questions from cashiers and baggers on where and how they can be purchased. Uh, Shields high, Cheryl. Uh, Cheryl, thank you so much. And as I've mentioned to you, the whole notion of using these uh, using paper bags instead of plastic is based on faulty science. And as you know, I'm always in the hunt for faulty science to point it out and to uh, when necessary or when appropriate mock and ridicule it. Uh, you got to cut down a lot of trees and use a lot of energy to create paper bags. Plastic bags don't biodegrade uh, well at all, but they're much more reusable and also require a lot less in transport energy. You got to think of that, too. Plastic is way more effective than paper when you're stacking it up and having to think about the overall weight. And for something like a Whole Foods chain, a major national grocery store, that all adds up, too. So... There you go, Cheryl. And I, 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 I'm with you on that. I brought some plastic bags with me. They can't, they can't stop me. I have some plastic bags that I brought my luggage, you know, in case I need to, like, put a wet bathing suit in or something. You know, what are they going to do? They're going to they gonna come after me because of my plastic bag habit? Yeah, that's right. Bring it, California state government. Daniel, next up here. Uh, Shields High Buck, absolutely love your show. Well, Daniel, you're a man of impeccable taste. So you've got that going for you, which is nice. I listen to the podcast, and I'm usually a day behind. I seem to remember you mentioning the Charlie Gard case in Britain a while back. I wondered if you've heard of the case of Alfie Evans and his family in Great Britain right now. It is virtually a repeat, and I wonder what your thoughts were. Thanks, and keep up the good work. Shields high, Daniel. Uh, Daniel, I always tell you the truth here. I do not know that case, and uh, I'm doing this in real time, so I can't look it up right now and respond to it. But I'll just tell you, now that I've mentioned it on air and now that you've written in, I will absolutely uh, take a look at this case. And, yes, I was 
very much into the coverage of the Charlie Guard situation, and I uh, thought that was a very important story that people needed to hear. Uh, so I will look at Alfie Evans. Thank you for the heads up. Steve uh, writes, hey, Buck, love the show. This is my first time writing in, but I've been listening to you for a while. Anyway, I, li- I usually listen uh, on the podcast through iTunes. I'm listening to the Monday show, and you're describing the kind of rock you like. My friends and I used to call that dad rock. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. Also, I was listening to a Dana Lash podcast earlier, and she was talking about a treatment for celiac disease they're trying out in Australia. I think they said they're trying to treat it like they do diabetes with some sort of small injection. You should check it out. Shields high. And Steve writes, I work behind enemy lines in Hollywood, so I know the struggle. Steve, the struggle is real. Uh, And, yeah, in in terms of celiac treatments, I follow some biotechnology companies that are working on immunotherapy responses to it because that's really what you're talking about with celiac disease. It's not an allergy. It is an autoimmune disorder, uh, which adds a whole bunch of layers of complexity in how you can treat it and what you can do about it. Uh, I am not familiar with the Australia case. I will check it out. Uh, And also, uh, Dana is a great lady who's awesome, and uh, it was my pleasure to be her colleague for years at The Blaze, as an aside. Um, Next up here we have uh, Linda, who writes, More bias and partiality. The judge presiding over Cohen's case also officiated Soros' 2013 wedding. What can be done? Linda... Just raising the alarm, doing what we do right here, trying to tell folks the truth so that they can act on it, they can spread the word. Never before has the everyday Joe and whatever the female equivalent of that is, Joe and and Jess or Joe and Jen or I don't know, uh, been able to, Josie, there you go, Josie, uh, been able to have their voices heard uh, with the in the same way that you can right now. If your message is powerful, if it resonates, uh, you can mobilize like-minded Americans and patriots like yourself. Uh, so we will keep doing what we do here. With that, i got to close up the Freedom Hunt. I've got some uh, vegan, organic, sustainable tacos to eat somewhere in uh, West Hollywood. I'm going to go hit that up. Uh, please do tell some folks about the podcast. It would be a huge favor to me. I'll appreciate it forever. Until tomorrow, from L.A., Shield High.